0: Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host, Jeff Cummings. Film historians and film buffs point to 1939 as one of the most important years in film history. Just look at the 10 nominees for best picture to understand why this year is held in such high regard. The Wizard of Oz, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Weathering Heights, and the eventual Best Picture winner, Gone with the Wind. All undeniable classics that have stood the test of time. Two of the ten nominees for Best Picture featured songs that were nominated for the Best Song Award that year, the first time two Best Picture nominees also turned up in the Best Song category. The premieres of many movies in 1939 were slightly overshadowed by the looming threat of World War, which was made official with the German invasion of Poland in September 1939. Newspapers all around the world printed headlines exclaiming the start of World War II, with big movie reviews also taking up some headlines. Gone with the Wind had taken up a lot of entertainment headlines since the search for Scarlett O'Hara began in 1937, and there were many more headlines to come after its preview screening a week after World War II started. Audiences were ecstatic, and critics went crazy for this four-hour movie. Other films got lots of praise, too. Despite the threat and eventual start of World War II, 1939 was one of the most profitable years for Hollywood. The Academy continued to allow the studios and production companies to each vote on one of its songs to submit for an automatic Academy Award nomination. But instead of the ten nominees that made the list in 1938, we only have four nominees for the 1939 Academy Award for Best Song. On the surface, One might think that only four studios had original songs eligible for the award, but some studios apparently just chose not to put songs in the running this year. We'll get to that after we talk about the four fortunate Best Song nominees, which will come with lots of spoilers, so either watch those movies before continuing on, or be prepared to know some crucial plot points. Going alphabetically, the first nominated song of 1939 is also the first Best Song nominee to come from an animated feature film. You might have thought a Walt Disney film would be the one to hold that distinction, but it was actually a Paramount film called Gulliver's Travels that achieved this milestone. Max Fleischer, the creator of Betty Boop and the cartoon version of Popeye, was the brains behind the Gulliver's Travels film, looking to make the idea of adapting the first part of Jonathan Swift's novel a reality at the same time Walt Disney was playing to put together the animated film version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Disney had no higher-ups to tell him no, which is why his movie opened first. Fleischer heard no at Paramount many times, until Snow White became a monstrous success. Gulliver's Travels quickly went into production with 11 men put in charge of directing the animation as Max Fleischer's brother David served as the overall director. Gulliver's Travels only made about 40% of Snow White's box office, which was still a big success for Paramount and for the fledgling animation feature industry. As the second animated feature film, audiences were curious to find out if it really was a viable genre of motion pictures. Critics loved it, and the Los Angeles Times said, A level of genuine artistry has been attained throughout. That review mentioned the men who wrote the songs, but doesn't offer an opinion of the effectiveness of the song score. It was Ralph Ranger and Leo Robin who were tasked with trying to outdo the work of Larry Morey and Frank Churchill's song score for Snow White. As is the case with animation, just as it would be for songs to be performed on screen in a live-action film, Ranger and Robin wrote the four songs for Gulliver's Travels very early in the process. Based on the timeline, Ranger and Robin wrote the songs for Gulliver's Travels just shortly before putting down the music and lyrics for their Oscar-winning Thanks for the Memory, which won them the Academy Award plaque in 1939. And here they were again as nominees, this time for the song Faithful Forever. Faithful Forever shows how well a song can be integrated into a story, even helping to push it along and create the resolution to the conflict at hand. In the film, the two nations of Lilliput and Blafescu are set to unite with the wedding of Princess Glory of Lilliput and Prince David of Blafescu. As the kings of both nations sign the contract, Princess Glory sings her love song called Faithful to David. On the surface, it isn't anything special in terms of love songs. As sung by Jessica Dragonette, Faithful isn't too much removed from Snow White's Someday My Prince Will Come, but perhaps that might be the point.
1: My son, David, and you'll
0: After hearing the song. The king of Blafescu demands that his son's love song called Forever is the only song to be sung at the wedding. Or there will be no wedding. After he storms out, David turns to glory and sings forever to her. It's very similar to the way Prince Charming sings one song to Snow White, though there's an air of sadness here since there is the possibility of no wedding. forever,
2: forever.
0: So you might be able to figure out where this is headed. The two nations go to war, but not before Gulliver finds out they're going to war over which song to sing at the wedding. Just as a side note, this was not a part of Jonathan Swift's novel, so kudos to the screenwriters for putting music front and center in the story, making Ralph Ranger and Leo Robin two very important contributors to the film. Gulliver suggests to Glory and David that they combine their love songs as a solution. Before they could do that, the war gets out of hand, and David seems to fall to his death after trying to save Gulliver. But David is alive and well, and he and Glory sing their combined song, Faithful Forever, to end the film. Gulliver, the kings, and the other little people join in.
2: Remember
1: that. They fall forever. Forever. and they fall for you. I'll keep smiling
0: I thought the separate lyrics to Faithful and Forever would be joined together for Faithful Forever, but we get new lyrics from Leo Robin to fit for the finale. It's not only a love song, but also a song about unity and forgiveness. Ranger was able to combine the two separate melodies superbly. It must have been fun to write these three songs. It's not known if they started with Faithful Forever and broke it apart, or if they started with two songs and then combined them into one. Either way, the artistry of creating Faithful Forever and making it a crucial plot point makes it deserving of the Academy Award nomination. Also earning another Academy Award nomination for the second consecutive year was Irving Berlin, who was still hurting over the fact that his music in Alexander Ragtime Band didn't turn out the way he wanted. But many of the pre-existing songs he wrote were finding a new life, and he was reaping the rewards with hefty royalty checks since he owned the rights to all of his songs. In the meantime, he continued his association with 20th Century Fox, turning out five songs for their 1939 film Second Fiddle. This would be Irving Berlin's final film with 20th Century Fox, as Berlin was looking for more creative control over his music. He turned into a freelance songwriter after this, and naturally, his talents created quite the bidding war. The song which became Berlin's fourth Best Song nomination was I Poured My Heart Into a Song. It comes about 55 minutes into the movie after Tyrone Powers' character, a Hollywood studio publicity agent named Jimmy, has discovered the next big actress in Minnesota. She's Trudy Hovland, played by Sonia Henney, who was coming off massive success at the Winter Olympics, winning gold medals in figure skating at the 1928, 1932, and 1936 Games. After her final Olympic appearance, she immediately moved to Hollywood and became one of the highest-paid actresses. Second Fiddle marked her fifth actual movie role, and like the others before it, Second Fiddle showed off her fine skating skills while giving her a chance to expand her talents as a leading lady. So once Trudy gets to Hollywood and lands the role every woman is coveting, the studio tries to concoct a romance with her and another new talent, Roger, played by singer Rudy Valley. The press the two get in the magazines helps their exposure, and Jimmy helps out by sending love notes to Trudy with Roger's name on them. In addition to being a send-up of the real-life search for an actress to play Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, Second Fiddle also turns into a variation of the Cyrano de Bergerac story, where Jimmy is expressing his love for Trudy through the notes that he signs in Roger's name. At the height of this faked romance, Jimmy writes, I poured my heart into a song for Roger to sing to Trudy. We see Jimmy writing out the song at the piano, even though we had not been told that he has the talent for songwriting. Watching Jimmy work out the song on the piano somewhat resembles the way Berlin crafts his songs, trying out various chords until he finds the right ones. Though sometimes it's a more talented pianist who is helping Berlin find the right notes for his songs and getting no credit for it, unfortunately. As is the case of Second Fiddle, there is no record of the man who served as Berlin's musical secretary, But it's likely they helped Berlin get the notes to match the lyrics.
2: I poured my heart into a song, and when you hear it, please remember from the start. You won't be hearing just the words and tune of a song, you will be listening to. My heart and da di I can think of clever things to say in my song, and so I say.
0: Jimmy is interrupted by his boss, who sees that Jimmy is falling for Trudy, but doesn't say anything. In the next scene, Roger performs the fully orchestrated version of I Poured My Heart Into a Song, dedicating it to Trudy. During the performance, the film cuts to Jimmy at home listening to Roger sing on the radio, looking forlorn that he is not able to speak the truth.
3: Oh. song, and when you hear it, please remember from the start, you won't be hearing just the words and tune of a song, you will be listening to my heart, I poured my heart into a song. I'm afraid the words I chose Are not so smart I couldn't think of clever things To say in my song I had to say it With my heart If it's never played On the hit parade will still contain a heart that is beating true If it's not a hit I won't mind a bit Long as it conveys the love that I bear for you Here is my heart wrapped in a song And if you take it Please don't tear my song apart For if you do, you won't be just destroying a song You will be tearing up my
0: heart This song is the only one of Berlin's tunes in Second Fiddle that contributes to the f- plot. The others are either performances as part of film production or involve some lavish dance number or extended sequence showing Sonia Henie skating on ice. Critics pointed out that Berlin's song score was the highlight of Second Fiddle, with New York critic Harold Barnes saying Berlin, quote, has composed some fetching ballads which do more than anything else in Second Fiddle to keep it beguiling, quote. The fact that the music department at 20th Century Fox picked I Poured My Heart Into a Song showed how Hollywood realized that big, splashy numbers weren't the best picks for an Academy Award nomination, but rather more intimate songs that could not be removed from the film without creating a gaping hole. It didn't necessarily mean that the big, splashy, 10-minute dance numbers won't continue to appear in Hollywood musicals, but going forward, we won't see many of them as Best Song Academy Award nominees. It shows how quickly Hollywood can drop one trend for another, very quickly. Remember that it was only five years earlier that the best song category was introduced at the Academy Awards, with two big production numbers lasting more than 10 minutes winning the award. The three songs that followed as winners were much smaller, but seemed to have a bigger impact on voters. Speaking of smaller songs getting an Oscar nomination, that is true for the third nominee, Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. When you think of some of the big production numbers in the movie, such as The Merry Old Land of Oz or Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, over the Rainbow feels like an afterthought. And it actually was. The songs for The Wizard of Oz were written by composer Harold Arlen and lyricist Edgar Yapizel Harburg, or Yip for short. Harburg went to high school with Ira Gershwin in the Queensborough of New York City, and it was Gershwin who convinced Harburg to get into songwriting after serving in World War I. In 1932, he and composer Jay Gorney wrote the unofficial anthem for the Great Depression called Brother, Can You Spare a Dime for the Broadway musical Review Americana. Right after that, he began his on-again, off-again collaboration with Harold Arlen as the two wrote It's Only a Paper Moon as part of the score for the Broadway flop The Great Magoo. It became a hit in 1933 after several singers gave it the exposure that was necessary. Before writing Paper Moon, Arlen was part of a successful songwriting duo as well, composing Stormy Weather and Get Happy with Ted Kohler. The two kept their songwriting partnership even though Harburg was the one who was assigned to write lyrics for The Wizard of Oz. When Arlen and Harburg started writing the songs, the ones taking place in Oz came first. Those came rather quickly, especially the introductory songs for The Scarecrow, The Tin Man, and The Lion, because Arlen used the same melody for all three. Just before filming was set to start, Producer Mervyn Leroy realized that Judy Garland didn't have a song of her own in the film. He pressured Arlen and Harburg to give Dorothy Gale her own song, and it had to come while she was still in Kansas. They weren't keen on a dramatic song in the film made for children, but they obliged on what would become their hardest song of the film to write. The story of Arlen finding the melody for Over the Rainbow is one of Hollywood lore. He and his wife were driving to Grauman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles to catch a movie. On the way there, the first seven notes of the song "da da 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 da" just came to him out of the blue. He asked his wife to pull over, and luckily he had some manuscript paper on hand for him to scribble down the notes. Needless to say, they didn't go to the movie that night. Harburg spent a couple of days trying to fit things associated with rainbows into the melody, especially the beginning two notes that span an entire octave. So here's the song as performed in the film, including the bridge of the song that contains the lyric, where troubles melt like lemon drops, way above the chimney tops. Arlen has said that an MGM executive called those notes, like the notes for a child's piano exercise. the Believe it or not, Over the Rainbow was in grave danger of never appearing in The Wizard of Oz. Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, thought the song performance slowed down the plot and meant more time before Dorothy goes to Oz. He also wasn't enamored with the idea of 16-year-old Judy Garland singing it either, thinking her voice was too mature. Arlen, Harburg, Leroy, and Fox's musical guru, Arthur Freed, protested Mayer's decision continuing to press him to leave the song in the movie as an anthem for universal longing. After a Los Angeles preview screening applauded the song, and after just about everyone associated with the film pleaded with them, Mayer changed his mind. But the one decision he made that stuck was taking out a reprise of Over the Rainbow in the film when Dorothy is locked in the witch's castle looking at the hourglass tick away. Judy Garland was supposed to sing a brief version live on the set before we see on m in the big crystal ball. That part of the scene remained, but when you hear Dorothy say, I'm frightened, M," that is where her song performance was to end. Over the Rainbow is the ultimate I want song, in which a character vocalizes their true desires, especially a wish to escape their present situation. Listen to any of your favorite movie songs performed as a solo by the main character. That is mostly an I want song. The standard was set by Someday My Prince Will Come, and realized again by Over the Rainbow. There is a verse that precedes the song opening that we all know, and it's not often performed. It goes, When all the world is a hopeless jumble, and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When all the clouds darken up the skyway, there's a rainbow highway to be found, leading from your window pane to a place behind the sun, just a step beyond the rain. Judy Garland speaks the words beyond the rain before starting Over the Rainbow in the film, which suggests that Harburg wanted some of his lyrics from that opening verse to show up in the film. No one expected The Wizard of Oz to make money. It cost almost $3 million to make, which was not far behind the $3.8 million to make Gone with the Wind. The Wizard of Oz made $3 million in its first run, but adding in marketing costs, the movie lost a lot of money. But critics liked it, and they liked Judy Garland, and it was undeniable that Over the Rainbow should be the song that MGM put up for Academy Award consideration. No other song in The Wizard of Oz really stood up to the same caliber, though the big production number Ding Dong the Witch is Dead might have been a close second. And the fact that Ding Dong the Witch is Dead has become part of the public vernacular when talking about a bad person's demise shows how popular the song has become. Over the Rainbow was the first Oscar-nominated song to be introduced by a child character. The fourth and final nominated song of 1939 was also introduced by children, and it's called Wishing from the movie Love Affair. The movie was fairly controversial when it was released, almost condoning adultery as it concerned characters played by Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer when they meet on a ship bound from New York from Italy. On the final night of the trip, Boyer's character, Michel, talks about having written in song about making wishes come true. Michelle is a playboy who travels the world with no apparent ambition, but this is the first time we learned of him having any songwriting talent. Dunn's character, Terry, is a singer, so it might have been a wiser choice to have her talk about writing the song. But anyway, Michelle speaks the lyrics that he had been working on.
1: I wrote a song once about wishing was nice. Oh, it No, no, I didn't mean that. I, I mean, it was. I mean, it was not bad. You know, one day I'm going to learn your language and be very funny, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. How does it go? Hmm? Oh, I forget. But it meant if you wish very hard with your mind, and if you wish very strong in your heart, and if you keep on wishing long enough and strong enough. You get what you want for Christmas. Peace.
0: The two agree to meet at the top of the Empire State Building in six months after they had developed their potential careers. Michelle makes it there, but Terry is hit by a car just outside the building and left paralyzed. She recuperates at a hospital near an orphanage and three girls hop the fence to perform Michelle's song, which Terry seems to have put to music as she convalesced. Terry plays just a ukulele as the girls sing the tender lyrics that speak of working to make wishes come true.
1: One, two, wishing will make it so. Just keep on wishing. no mistake and wishes all the dreams we
0: The performance was recorded in a studio by the Bryan Sisters, who were already popular radio stars when they were asked to sing Wishing in 1939. They had also been making film appearances, but this recording of Wishing might have been the highlight of their career, especially when it climbed close to the top of the hit parade list. Though it was requested that the three Bryan Sisters appear as the orphan girls who sing with the i Ring done on screen, the two oldest girls, Doris and Betty, were deemed too old. So, the youngest sister, Gwen, appeared with two child actresses in the scene. So, Terry gets a job working at the orphanage as the music director, and she has taught the children to perform the song at a benefit concert on Christmas Day. She isn't feeling well, so she can't attend. The children visit her home and perform an a cappella version of the song. This version is sung by Robert Mitchell's boy choir. One, two,
1: three. Not too loud. There's a baby upstairs. One, two.
0: According to her biography written by Wes Gehrig, Irene Dunn was able to pick the song she would help the orphans sing. The song was written by George Buddy De Silva, who had written for Al Jolson on Broadway and collaborated with George Gershwin in the 1920s. He was also a successful solo songwriter in New York Tin Pan Alley before moving to Hollywood in 1930 where he mostly worked as a producer instead of a songwriter. De Silva heard of the request by RKO Pictures for a children's song based on some lines in the screenplay, and his good fortune turned it to his first and only Academy Award nomination. There's another original song in Love Affair which Terry sings in a nightclub in Philadelphia in the six months between her Atlantic Crossing and her tragic accident. It's called Sing My Heart, written by Harold Arlen and Ted Kohler. As I mentioned earlier, Arlen and Koehler had been a successful songwriting team since the 1920s, And though Arlen was not able to work with Kohler for The Wizard of Oz, they did get together for this one song. But RKO's music department picked Wishing for their nominated song, which is not a bad decision since that song is born out of a dialogue scene and, in a way, details the work that Michelle and Terry must do to make their romantic and professional dreams come true. So, why only four songs nominated in 1939 when we got ten the previous year? Every studio could have submitted a song for Academy Award submission, but apparently some studios didn't feel the need to do so, or didn't have any songs to submit. Warner Brothers had a musical comedy released in 1939 called Naughty But Nice, starring Dick Powell. Harry Warren and Johnny Mercer wrote some decent songs for the film, though qualification for an Academy Award nomination had nothing to do with quality that year. Powell was looking to get out of his contract with Warner Brothers after playing the same roles for dozens of movies. He voiced his concern after finishing the Horse Race movie Going Places in 1938, featuring the Oscar-nominated song Jeepers Creepers, and Warner Brothers responded by giving Naughty But Nice a quiet release. Perhaps as a way to punish Powell, Warner Brothers did not put up any of the songs Warren and Mercer wrote. Universal Pictures had Bing Crosby up its sleeve once again for another musical, called East Side of Heaven. Johnny Burke and James Monaco wrote four songs for Bing Crosby to sing in the film, and they all became hits. The critics loved the songs, and they all became hits for Bing Crosby, especially the title song, which is yet another Bing Crosby lullaby, this time to a newborn baby he finds himself caring for.
2: Would you listen to a story, the most amazing story That you've ever heard It concerns a certain romance A most amazing romance You'll have to take my word It may sound unreal to you But it's absolutely true Know an angel on the east side of heaven Who lives in a third-story room We meet on a rooftop and dream in the dark When the lights of New York are in blue
0: There are no written records to help us understand why MGM and Universal decided to skip the best song category in 1939. Perhaps they knew nothing could beat Over the Rainbow and wanted to skip the embarrassment of a loss at the Academy Awards ceremony, or Studio Politics played a hand and got in the way of four deserving songwriters getting their recognition. MGM had an embarrassment of riches of movie songs in 1939, and when Over the Rainbow was picked as the studio's choice for an Oscar nomination, and many other songwriters under assignment at the studio had to watch their Academy Awards prospects fizzle out that year. Arlen and Harburg were likely not very concerned that their songs from the Marx Brothers comedy at the circus would not be nominated, though one of the songs they wrote for the film, Lydia the Tattooed Lady, has become one of the most loved songs performed by the Marx Brothers in their long film career. The last song that Nacio Herr Brown wrote for a Hollywood movie was Good Morning for the film Babes in Arms, starring Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Because it was an MGM picture, Garland was contracted to be a part of it, but it gave her two hits in the same year, which went a long way to convincing the Academy that she should receive the Juvenile Award for acting that year. It only cemented Garland's place in Hollywood as not only a great child actor, but a great actor in general. And Mickey Rooney became the second child actor to earn an acting nomination, making him one of the most bankable actors in Hollywood. As for Nacio Herb Brown, he left Hollywood to focus on his classical composing career. Though he left the film world in 1939, Brown's songwriting legacy lived on in the 1959 film Singing in the Rain, which uses a lot of the songs he had written in the 1920s. So there's no need to draw out the inevitable any longer, and I'm sure you already know that Over the Rainbow was the Academy Award winner for Best Song of 1939. It's not to say that the competition wasn't worthy, but... Over the Rainbow just stands out large when looking back at the list decades later. Gene Buck, who was the president of the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers at the time, presented the Best Song Award to Harburg and Arlen. Just before Over the Rainbow won the Academy Award, Herbert Stothart won the Original Score Award for The Wizard of Oz, marking the first time a film won the Song Award and a Score Award. This is gonna happen a lot more in the history of the Academy Awards, but not as often as you might think. Not only did Over the Rainbow win the Best Song Award, but it was the first song nominee performed at the ceremony. Not long after Gene Buck named the winner of the Best Song Award, Judy Garland received her Juvenile Academy Award, and after her speech, sang Over the Rainbow. Presiding over this Academy Award ceremony was Bob Hope in his first of record 19 stints as host. Almost every time he is introduced as host of the Oscars, he is accompanied by an instrumental version of his Academy Award winning song, Thanks for the Memory. Well, not his Academy Award winning song, that really is Ralph Ranger's and Leo Robbins' Academy Award winning song. As for Over the Rainbow, its legacy is still strong, and that will last for at least another hundred years. The song has been voted as the best movie song by just about everyone who has put out a list, including the American Film Institute. Judy Garland couldn't sing at a concert without performing Over the Rainbow, even as an adult, and her performance of the song at the 1961 Carnegie Hall Combat Concert ranks as one of her best. It was so great sharing so many interesting stories behind the creation of these four nominated songs, and f- trying to figure out why at least two others did not get a nomination might remain as one of the great Unsolved Mysteries. I'm sure the song nominees of 1940 will have just as many exciting stories And I'll be sharing those with you in the next episode. Thanks for singing along with me on the Best Song Podcast. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.